Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Kenneth Johnson. He's the Executive Dean of the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine and Chief Medical Affairs Officer at Ohio University. Dr. Johnson also serves as Chair of the Ohio Council of Medical School Deans. Today, we're talking about the roles of primary care physicians in fighting the coronavirus pandemic and how medical schools are helping in the battle. Dr. Johnson, primary care physicians, I think, have been sort of lost in the discussions we hear uh, about the coronavirus, and we hear from people in Washington and New York and and, and the West Coast. Uh, and we hear from national experts, international experts, the World Health Organization. But we sort of forget about the, the, the local guy down the street who's a medical doctor or a woman down the street who's a, a medical doctor or, or an osteopathic doctor who's treating people, the, the daily treatment of people. Um, how did they fit into this whole picture? Yeah, Tom, I'm glad you asked that question. So I'm a family physician, and I've trained people to be primary care physicians my entire career over the last 30 years. And, and you know, one of the things that I know about primary care physicians is that they change their practice to meet the needs of their patients. And so if they're in a setting where uh, they need someone for sports medicine, that's what they do. If they need a county coroner, that's what they do. Now, in this case here, and with a pandemic that's sweeping the world, the primary care physicians are on the front lines of care delivery and guiding patients during these really uncertain times. And so they're working with on patients to help guide them into, out of, and or around the around the health system on right now. And and they're the the point of first contact for the most part on into the you know into the into the health system. So they're the point of contact where a patient who thinks they might have symptoms uh, contacts them in some form. It used to be go into the office. Now it's sometimes by phone or, or other uh, telecommunications methods. Uh, the, the doctor does an assessment, right? Uh, right? Right there based upon that conversation. Yeah, so 
part of what we're doing is getting as proactive as we possibly can be. So for actually every contact into the primary care physician's office, we're asking a series of questions around the most common symptoms that people are experiencing with this disease, some of which you might not necessarily think of off the top of your head. So on two of them that I can think of are fatigue and confusion. And um, the reason I'm smiling as we're talking right now is that <laughs> I, I'm feeling a little confused and fairly fatigued uh, right now with all this, <laughs> right. All, all this work. But so every, actually every point of contact in primary care right now is somewhat guided on with this in mind so that there's some screening questions on, that are there. And on what, what has happened is we've moved to help protect healthcare as well as the patients more and more into this kind of telehealth on uh, remote health on uh, space uh, to really ha- help guide people. So a- actually almost every member of the healthcare team, including the person who uh, answers the phone for the primary care physician uh, is uh, being trained to help uh, ask some of the questions and then, tr- and then triage and, g- and then the primary care physician helping to guide what some of the next steps are for the patient. This is such a unique virus that, that you know, we know little about, uh, you know, some, but, but little, uh, given and it has no history. And so how did you – how do you train a primary care physician on a brand-new disease? Yeah, well, that's a great – that's a great question. And – Uh, I think I'll go back to the basic way we train primary care physicians anyways, which is to be adaptive generalists, so adapting to whatever the circumstances that's there, and then trying to draw from the best information that we can and apply it immediately. Now, here's the tough part. Uh, If you go to the CDC's website today and read about um, this virus and treatment, et cetera, you'll see a lot of it is thought it may be, it could be, trials are underway, uh, et cetera. So there's not as much information as we would like to have uh, at this time. So uh, the good part of that for a primary care physician is that primary care physicians are often the ones who deal with ambiguity more than anybody uh, because being the point of first contact, someone might present with a single symptom that. Uh, takes time as it develops to actually figure out what it is, and then you figure it out and you send it to the specialist who then is caring for that as the second point of contact. And so I I think primary care physicians are comfortable with ambiguity, uh, and, uh, you know, in in medicine there's a lot of uh, terminology where there's an OMA on the end of it, (laughs) and I often think that primary care physicians, the most common thing they take care of is an I don't know ma on because yeah. patients come in and they have these you know kind of strange constellation of symptoms and you have to you have to figure those on you know those out. But I, I think we're training a, a generation of physicians who are able to access uh, information immediately and then uh, then apply it on uh, r- right away. I, I wanted to ask about something you just said though and and that is um, a primary care physician if if a patient goes in and has certain symptoms the primary care physician may order some tests blood tests right. mris whatever and then comes back and says okay 
I think you need to go see a, a specialist on this. I'll transmit all of your records, and the patient then goes off to to the next closest city or across town to right. get the 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 expert that they need. And the so the primary care physician is sort of a triage person to decide what specialist right. this person should go to, if any. Here, this thing is moving so fast that you can't really pawn somebody off on a specialist. No, and I don't mean pawn off in no, a bad no, way. You, you can't send them to a specialist. You don't have time to do that. Right, right. So, you know, so Tom, I've been thinking about this, and I've reflected on, on there's two or three other uh, instances in medical history that I've been reflecting on a little bit uh, with this. So, so the cousin to COVID is SARS, right? Mm-hmm. And that, right. you know, when that, that occurred, uh, you know, there was a lot of information that we didn't have that we had to then kind of adapt to on uh, to quickly. The other one that it actually reminds me of is the AIDS epidemic. Uh, and the re- the reason it reminds me of that is that when when patients first started presenting, uh, they had a constellation of symptoms. We didn't really know on uh, what it was. And uh, part of what I saw happen with AIDS is as people had good ideas and then started testing them, they were shared immediately and then replicated or, or not. So, so as an example, you might have seen a conference on AIDS that said, if you use these three drugs together, we've seen good results. And compared to the usual process of years or a decade of the development of a treatment, there was really kind of a rapid application of that. And and here on today, where there's so little information and such a high need to to respond, you're starting to see people coming up with good ideas and seeing if they if they work and doing it immediately. Funders are lining up that way to say, you know, we should think about this. On trials, immediate trials are launching of drugs that are on the market that we know about, on um, and that on um, may have some immediate application because we just don't we don't have two years to develop a trial and then run a trial on um, et cetera on um, as as part of that. So on um, what. The typical primary care physician will do is um, look at all the tools available in the toolkit and then say, is there something here um, that will help me um, that I can adopt and adapt um, right away? And there's not a lot in the toolkit um, right now. So help me out with this. I think this is a, a big topic to, to talk about, and that is the use of drugs that haven't been predestined yes. to to treat something. Uh, to use your AIDS analogy, um, at least at the height of the epidemic, people who had the HIV AIDS virus considered it a death sentence yes. and that they were going to die. And so they were willing to try almost anything to see if they could stop that or prolong right. their life. Here we have a, a – I don't want to minimize it – a small percentage of deaths, you know, 2 3% uh, by the World Health Organization, I think 3.4 or something like that. Uh, that's not insignificant, but 
should we apply medication to a group of people who may get over it themselves? Yeah, it's a good, really great question there. And when you look at um, the population as a whole, most people we know will get a mild illness that will look like a common cold. And um, it's those people that are the sickest um, that we're, I think, really talking about here right now. So people who already have a disease that are at the highest likelihood of dying uh, as, a result, as a result of that. So um, right now, there's no drug that's approved for treatment, uh, as an example. There are some drug trials going on right now of currently existing drugs uh, that we think might be applicable. One uh, started in New York. Yep, in New York. There's another one actually going on in uh, at uh, in Cleveland on right now on uh, taking a look at at this. And so we have some. Um, if you think about it, there's the approved drug. There's an, a drug a drug that's been kind of approved for compassionate use, saying that we think there may be benefit. And then there's off label uh, drugs as well. That okay, w- so that we you think use might be. you use two terms yep. that I think we need to break down: compassionate use and yes. off label. Yep. Uh, start with the first. What does that mean? Yeah. So compassionate use would be one, would be one where on uh, you have a on a drug that is approved for A, that we think may be benefit for B, and now is saying that uh, this is something where uh, we think there might be enough benefit for you to go ahead uh, and, uh, and use the drug. So, so using your example, uh, the uh, anti-malaria drug yep. that, that's being talked about now yes. has been approved for years and years right, and years right. as an anti-malaria drug. Uh, it's not been approved to, to fight this virus, right. but it's been approved and has some known side effects right. uh, with the uh, malaria population. Yes. Uh, so it's already been approved, so you're just shifting its use right. from one to another. That's different than a drug that's not been approved at all. Oh, sure. Oh, yes, use. yes, yeah. No, it's a gr- really good point on uh, as as part of that. So, I think on uh, I'm putting myself now in the shoes of someone who's taking care of someone who's in the hospital on a ventilator, very ill, on uh, and what is it that we can do uh, to try to help improve the likelihood that this person is going to live. On uh, and so those physicians are looking across these classes of on uh, of course there's no approved drug looking at drugs that exist that might be off-label uh, and the use on, and benefit of, of those, or do we have any in the, in the pipeline? And, and more, probably the most common place you see these kind of compassionate uses uh, would be a drug in development for cancer uh, that uh, then someone looks like they and uh, fit the characteristics that that drug might be Look, I'm be- gonna, beneficial I'm going to die, so right. I'll, take, exactly. I'll take anything. Right, you right, know. exactly. There's really three classes of drugs that are getting looked at right now on kind Talk of broadly. So those that are antiviral, on, you, you mentioned the kind of antimalarial, on, right. or, or there's another one as an antibiotic. On, and then now we're also looking at combinations of these to see if these would be helpful. And again, it, similar to the HIV. Exactly. Combo. Yeah, and that's what that's what this that's why this conversation reminds me of the on, of the AIDS epidemic, where on the best thinkers on uh, putting on their minds to solutions on relatively quick testing and then sharing of, inf- of, of information on that 
could be could be beneficial to those people on who particularly are the are the most ill. So I I, I don't want to uh, skip over it off label. We didn't define that. Yeah, so that would be, in this case, the, the antimalarial drug or antibiotic. There's a proof of sinusitis that now is being given for on someone who has on COVID-19. Okay, so circling back to our primary yes. physician who's got a patient in the hospital uh, and uh, who is ill. Does the primary care physician make that decision of whether to use these drugs and do that in consultation with the patient? Is it the hospital physician? How does that work? Yeah, it, it really depends on the setting. And then I have, um, you know, one of the sayings that I've adopted is that, you know, <laughs> just, just like all politics is, is uh, are local, all healthcare solutions are local. So let's take a rural hospital here in Southeast Ohio. Sure. So you might have a primary care physician who is taking care of their patients directly in the hospital on, or maybe that they're rotating a shift in the hospital on, and taking care of folks on for each other. On, or, you know, many settings have a hospitalist now where the primary care physician is handing the care over to the hospitalist, whether that's rural or in the bigger on hospitals. So on, most of the time, these folks are getting guidance and support from, from others on, to help make some of those on decisions. And I, what I what I worry about as we continue to move on is just you know people are going to continue to get more and more overloaded, and so the ability to share this information for people to make their own decisions uh, is what's going to be the most one of the most important things as we continue to move forward. So the most primary care physicians are, are typically a little bit are, are much more on the front line in the outpatient setting and, and the connector to the inpatient setting and or the connector back out of the uh, inpatient setting. So that if somebody comes out of the hospital, goes home with maybe portable oxygen right. or whatever, mm-hmm. and it goes back to the family care. Right, right. and they'd uh, be the, the manager there. They, yep. they would be the, the, the primary one right. uh, to do the care. You know, we hear every day about the overloads of hospitals and emergency rooms and the need to either use hospital ships or building hospitals, building additional beds uh, in, in critical areas. That just tells me that the overload with the healthcare providers the doctors, the nurses, the the med techs, everybody up and down the line has got to be severe already. How does this translate to to the the primary care physician in small town USA? They've got to be overloaded too. Yeah, the, the, you know, I I on um, the other joke that I it's not a good joke that I have is that all, <laughs> all, all, all things are magnified by rurality. On, and so the, the more rural you get, the more are uh, dire, dire needs there are or the lack of resources that are there. And that's where, that's where the primary care physician is often the one to try to fill the need regardless of what the need, you know, what those needs are. And, you know, I trained from my entire career people to go into rural settings who maybe were taking care of diabetes patients who um, really probably needed a diabetologist to take care of, but there isn't any, or someone who had psychiatric illness and they needed to help them with psychiatric drugs. And and in this setting here right now, I think that the primary care physician is quickly pivoting to think through how can they help on people at this time of pandemic. 
and and they're sort of the um, first line, <laughs> right? Of of defense in in all of this. Yes. Uh, except for somebody who goes directly to the hospital, they're the ones that that sort of start the machinery going. Right. Right. Exactly. So you also, as as dean of a uh, heritage college of osteopathic medicine at Ohio University, you train physicians. Um, are physicians trained for this kind of thing? Yeah. So the great, great question. In general, we train all of our physicians in. Uh, of course, in infectious disease and the treatment of infectious disease and the use of protective equipment on, in the uh, hospital and outpatient setting in sterile techniques uh, and, and things like that. And so we, we train all of our students uh, in that. And one of, one of the things that we found here uh, was the um, desire on our end to ensure that they had an additional level of of training and and unfortunately um, we had to make the decision to take our medical students or suspend them being in a clinical setting and part, that decision wasn't taken lightly but we and I now what does that mean not oh, yeah. being in a clinical setting yeah so so what we did is we started watching on um, this uh, in China and on, back, back in January. Back in January. Okay. And at Ohio University, looking at students that we had going abroad, faculty going abroad, and started that review very closely there. And then as it moved into the United States from a training perspective, on the primary care physician, as we said, is on the front line. Well, they have medical students along with them. We have medical students in the emergency department, in on inpatient on adult medicine, in the ICU, on, et cetera. So we were monitoring that on a daily basis. And when it got to the point where we were seeing the lack of protective equipment available for the providers and the spread of disease, and we made a decision on to pull all of our students off of clinical rotations and put them in online training. And we literally made that decision overnight. And I, ch I chair the Council of Medical School Deans from Ohio. On a Friday, all medical students in Ohio were on clinical rotations by Monday night. And after um, working together over the weekend, two medical student schools stopped rotations on Saturday, two more stopped on Sunday, and all the rest were done on Monday. And we did um, uh, urgent calls on with the deans of all the medical schools and gathering information from really around the nation about that, about that decision. And so as that was evolving, my team and I made a decision that if we're going to take our students out of the clinical setting and give them online learning, and, and this is another place where um, I just feel such a great degree of gratitude um, for, for my staff um, to, to pivot from an in-person experiential learning to an online learning environment overnight um, is, is monumental. Um, and uh, what we tried to do with that is if we're going to take medical students out of the clinical setting, then I felt it was incumbent upon take us. Take them hands off. Hands off. They are out. They are yeah. remote. They're working at home on uh, online on using on uh, Zoom and on uh, other uh, activities uh, to allow them to continue to progress in their medical uh, training. But we felt that at this unprecedented time, 
on that we needed to have relatively unique and creative solutions. So the very first thing we did when we took all of our medical students off of our clinical rotations is we, we, we gave them a mandatory COVID-19 training. Um, and then we have now developed an um, online training program for our students that all students will go through that will better prepare them to enter into the healthcare setting on, in an urgent need, on, as an example. And I, I, st I do my planning with kind of the multiple scenario and worst case scenario. On, and, and to me, the worst case scenario is that there's a need for all hands on deck and that our students are called upon on, to be part of the solution. And if that's the case, I would like to be able to prepare students to enter in to be useful hands in a way that can be the most helpful as well as the most protective on, for, for themselves. And our students are so altruistic, kind, smart on people. They want to help now, and it's frustrating to them on, to not. So for us to give them activities that are authentic, that might allow them to be part of the solution, and maybe the solution in waves. So maybe we can pair up some of our students to work with public health, uh, as an example, in an early stage where they work remotely, um, but get credit for being able to mm -hmm. move uh, along. And I, I've, in working with my student leadership, I've said that um, this is a time that if we can think of in the right way to help engage you, you'll be able to tell your grandchildren <laughs> about, because it's so unlike anything that's ever happened um, before. Um, so we're trying to prepare uh, medical students on to be able to be part of a solution on if it's needed. As a minimum, these folks are gonna re-enter the healthcare environment on post this on pandemic on where there's still maybe pockets of disease, on, et cetera, and we want them to be well prepared to be able to on, identify and help. When, when you say that med schools and, and yours is, as well uh, uh, took out the, the students from clinical settings. Did that include interns and residents? Yeah, no. So the interns and residents have stayed in the clinical okay. uh, setting right now. So the postgraduate training period of time, uh, they are still uh, in that setting in various different... Because so many yeah. hospitals rely on them. Oh, right? yeah. No, definitely. They're part of the workforce on providing... Not, they uh, provide services as, as well as the education uh, that, they, that they get. And uh, we have literally hundreds and hundreds of on interns and residents in the state of Ohio who are on providing, you know, kind of some of the frontline care as part of teams of uh, physicians on at this at this time of pandemic. We also hear a term, and you can help us out here. I think uh, we've heard the term public health a lot yes. over the last month, and probably before that, didn't pay much attention. Right. to uh, the public health doctor or the head of the public health department, you know, big deal. Right. Uh, uh, how has that role morphed under this pandemic, and has it been appropriately funded? You ask easy questions there, Tom. <laughs> so, so let's start with the, with, with, the, with the first one. So I was on a call on yesterday, and I've had a couple of these, in this preparation for medical students and actually other health care providers, I've called for the national organizations uh, in education to work together 
So we had a call with the American Association of Colleges of Osteopathic Medicine. We had the PA group on. We had the uh, public health group on, on as well, as well as a number of others. And on PA being physician physicians assistants. assistants. Yeah, yeah, thank you. No problem. And so on... So uh, the, the person who leads the uh, Public Health Educational Association said nobody cared about public health until now. Uh, and now it's, it's become one of the most important uh, things uh, that, that we have. And on public health, traditionally in most states, has been underfunded. Uh, and uh, here we now – I think we have a pretty robust uh, network uh, in Ohio on for, for, for public health, and I really have to – give my hat off and on uh, the gratitude to the people that are working in, on public health on, in the state. Um, that network is trying to help provide guidance and screening on, in each of the, on each of the counties. Um, they've had to prioritize their own work, things that, they've no that they normally would do around um, you know, food health and safety, as an example, have been shifted onto on the pandemic and the issues that are, that are needed on for that. And I think that's where Part of bolstering the public health system has been these uh, unique partnerships and coordination and collaboration that's going on with um, the health systems, uh, et cetera. I can speak here and you know, in Athens, uh, public health is working very closely with the other um, health systems um, for um, coordinating um, screening and positive results uh, and, and things like that. We've had, uh, we being the medical school, have had direct conversations as well around how do we think about realigning our community health programs, which provides services to 27 counties across Southeast Ohio for the poor and underserved. How do we think about realigning those services to help bolster on public health or health care on delivery? And on, I, I've been so honored uh, to participate in those on calls and problem-solving sessions where we think about connecting services that maybe haven't been so well connected on before or on aligning services to just try to, to, try to help each other at, the, at, at these most on unusual times. Part of me thinks that things will never be the same after this. I mean, we, we some good, some bad, but, right. but things have changed. I, I totally agree with that. And part of, part of how I've been trying to frame it to people as we, as we've, you know, have looked at this, that this is, this is a time that almost nobody alive has seen since the, no. you know, the last closest thing to this was the flu pandemic of 1918, uh, and that changed the face of the world uh, at that time. And uh, my, my motto during this from my mentor has been, don't let a good crisis go to waste. <laughs> uh, and how do, we, how do we at this time come together uh, in ways that we never have and how do we take advantage of that for the greatest good possible as we continue to move forward? So establishing new lines of work that we haven't on before. On this, I think, will change the face of medical education. On I, was on the, I, am, I was on the body that accredits colleges of osteopathic medicine for a decade. Right. We said that you could not have more than 50% of your curriculum delivered remotely. On, and now we've had to pivot so that virtually every medical school in the U.S. is delivering their curriculum remotely today. Uh, what will that look like as we um, as we move forward? And how do you how do some you take some will be kept, yeah. some will be jettisoned. R right, I'm exactly. Sure. Yeah. One thing that I've noticed uh, 
especially here in in Ohio, but I've I've noticed I've been watching other states, Massachusetts and Illinois and, and New York and and others, is communication. Um, not only are we talking about uh, trying to get the best medical care possible yes. for the most people possible, but communicating what's going on and what we're doing right. or what you're doing, I yes. should say, it, it seems critical to a public buy-in to the seriousness of all of this. Oh, I completely agree with that. And, you know, I, I want to uh, give kudos to um, Amy Acton, the director uh, for the Ohio Department of Health, because I think she's done a really, truly fantastic job of trying to take some complex issues and present them in easy-to-understand on terms and in layman's terms, and also trying to emphasize the seriousness of uh, of what we're what we're dealing with on here right now. And um, I I think there's a lot of information being shared. I'm not so sure that there's a lot of communication uh, going on uh, right now. And I, I think it's overwhelming for people. We have uh, speaking of communication, it, 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 we have a balancing that we have to do in the country between economic issues and public health issues. Yes. Now, I know from a physician's standpoint, public health is predominant, but public officials do have to make some some decisions. That's got to be a terrible place to be. Oh, I think it's tremendously hard, you know, and I, I uh, you know, I've heard it said a number of times that on uh, in crises like this on uh, often and early on, people say you're doing too much, and late they say you haven't done enough uh, as part of that. And um, in a small way, um, you know, I lead, I lead a, a complex medical school, uh, multiple campuses, uh, multiple uh, hospital partners, uh, et cetera. And um, when, when it comes down to it, I think that on um, people in those leadership positions have to make the decisions that they feel, believe, and and know are right based on all the best information that they have on at that time. And I, I actually believe that the most important thing is to take action because if you decide to go to the right and as you learn, you then need to go to the left, you, you can do that. I think the worst thing is to just take to take no action. To make decisions and and be flexible, be nimble. Yeah, is, be, yeah. Be, you know, be nimble, and you know that's a. And I, I've never seen you know because I sit in the space of higher ed right now, and also in in healthcare delivery, and I I've never seen higher ed move faster. Uh, and, and maybe we'll learn a lot uh, from because <laughs> it's normally <laughs> glacial. <laughs> <laughs> from you know, learn a lot from that, and you know, I I am just so so proud of what I've seen going on here at, at Ohio University, and and with our sister colleges and universities, we're on. We're not only pivoting at a at a, a moment's notice, and um, you know we're reaching out to each other to help ease the burden on of, of that. On um, and you know the work that we're doing here at Ohio University, um, I just never have seen it move faster. I've never seen more people on um, stepping up to the plate, offering on um, you know kind of helping hands on um, as as part of this, and the the kind of care and compassion that I'm seeing on. Um, it, it, it brings a tear to my eye uh, at times. It's it's really redefined community. Oh, I agree. In, in, in a much broader definition yes. of, of, of what that means. Well, 
you you told me before we went on the air that uh, your life now reminds you of your days as being an intern, you know, the 156-hour right. work weeks. We thank you for giving us some time. Oh, I, I, you know, Tom, thank you for letting me uh, come in and, and chat for a little bit. I, I thought it was really important for us to have this, you know, this dialogue at a time of, uh, of uncertainty. And I, I think we can't communicate enough. We can, we can provide too much information, but I don't think we can communicate enough. And I think uh, kudos need to go out to the primary care physicians around the country that, that are on the front lines here and get almost no recognition whatsoever. I agree that those those everyday heroes deserve our thanks our and our gratitude and our support whenever we can give it to them. Dr. Johnson, thanks. Thank you for having me. Today we've been talking with Dr. Kenneth Johnson, Executive Dean of the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine at Ohio University, about the roles of primary physicians in the battle against the coronavirus. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Blueberry, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so Please rate our podcast or review it. You can do that through any one of your podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. 